freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. And welcome to episode number 294 of Gun Freedom Radio, where we engage, we educate, and we inform. We are brought to you by azfirearms.com, your nationwide hometown gun shop. I am one of your hosts, Cheryl Todd. And I'm the other guy, Dan Todd. Our, our theme today is the new assault on your Second Amendment. And our guest is David Keene. David is the editor-at-large of the Washington Times. He has served as president of the National Rifle Association, chairman of the American Conservatives Union, and during college, chairman for Young Americans for Freedom. He has worked as special assistant to Vice President Sparrow Agnew, executive assistant to U.S. Senator Jim Buckley in charge of the first Supreme Court campaign finance reform fight, Southern Region Manager for Reagan for President, 1976, and National P Political Director for Bush for President in 1980. David also wrote a column in The Hill for 13 years, The Boston Herald for a decade, and in 2016, he authored the book, Shall Not Be Infringed, The New Assaults on Your Second Amendment, on Your Second Amendment. Well, my goodness, wow. I, I think I need to go take up a hobby to try to even keep up with you, David. Thank you so much for being with us today on Gun Freedom Radio. It's my pleasure. You just have to live forever to do that and not be able to hold one position. <laughs> it's, it's, it's impossible. I mean, I got tired just reading all that. No doubt. That is fantastic. And of course, I have borrowed from the title of your book to be the theme of today's show because it seems like everything old is new again. Uh, the new assaults on your Second Amendment. I, I think we're experiencing uh, a whole new rash, which is the same old stuff. Uh, here we go again. Yes? That's exactly right. You know, it was it Yogi Berra that said it seems like deja vu all over again. Because uh, while the book that I wrote was written in the, in the wake of the Obama assault on the Second Amendment, uh, as I went back to look at it, uh, a couple of months ago, uh, the same thing is unfolding today that unfolded then. And it all stems from the fact, I think, that the, the left from the beginning of what we now call the culture wars in the late 1960s uh, began to consider uh, the uh, Second Amendment to be just antithetical to their view of what American society should be. And the anti-gun movement became quasi-religious. You know, when, uh, when I wrote that book, John Bolton uh, wrote the foreword to it, and he said it, the, the anti-gun movement in America reminds him of nothing so much as the anti-nuclear and unilateral disarmament movement in the 70s and 80s, uh, which was uh, exploited, of course, by the, by the left, but included a lot of people who came to the conclusion that if the United States simply disarmed, 
that the world would become a very, very safe place because everyone else would follow suit uh, and we'd live in harmony ever after. It was untrue internationally. It's untrue domestically uh, because if we pass all of these gun laws, all it does is disarm legitimate legal gun owners and wipe out the shooting sports uh, that we in previous generations uh, have, uh, have been involved in for so long. So it always comes back. You know, uh, the, the, you don't really win the war. You do win some battles. And if you're a Second Amendment supporter, given the nature of the opposition to the Second Amendment, you have to be ready every day to go through the whole thing again. Boy, uh, it, that is exactly right. And, you know, when I uh, think about the Obama administration and I think about, you know, even uh, the administrations before that, where there was such a push for uh, the, this cultural way of denigrating those of us who who own firearms, those of us who are supporters of our Bill of Rights, the Second Amendment, uh, there seems to be this common denominator over the last, uh, let's say, 40-ish years, and I think his name might be Biden. Well, he's been, in his entire career, perhaps the poster child for, for people who are anti-gun, try to lead the crusade against guns, and don't know what they're talking about. Uh, this is a guy that's, uh, that apparently uh, gets whatever he knows about guns from comic strips and, and old westerns. Uh, you'll remember his suggestion that the police be trained to pe shoot people in the leg uh, when they have a confrontation, or that if his wife was assaulted, she should simply step out on the deck with a double barrel shotgun and fire it into the air a couple of times. If, he, if she did that, he said, nothing would ever happen. So he did, we didn't have to worry. Uh, he's an interesting guy. Uh, he's always been anti-gun. He always will be. He was very clear in the primaries mm -hmm. uh, as, uh, and caucus states as he was securing the nomination for this last presidential run that he was right on board with every anti-gun proposal that was ever made, but then went silent on it as soon as the nomination was wrapped up. Uh, now, those who support the Second Amendment, the NRA and other groups, uh, went out and, and, and told our people that this was a real, that this guy was a real threat. The problem was uh, in this election, the election wasn't decided as the left likes to tell you based on some hatred of Donald Trump. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't decided on guns. It wasn't decided in fact on any of the things that are atop of the Biden agenda. It was decided because of the pandemic. And, uh, and, and, you know, for example, most of the post-election analyses showed that uh, those Americans, for example, who put economics and the economic health of the country at the top of their agenda voted 65% uh, for Trump. Unfortunately, this year, the economic situation was not at the top of the agenda. The pandemic was, and whoever's in power, governor, president, or whatever, has tended to get knocked down because of that. That's what decided the election. Uh, the rest of this is a, is the fantasy wish list of a left-wing Democratic Party that thinks that now that it has temporarily the power in this country, it can accomplish everything it wants, regardless of the feelings of the American people. Well, you know, with eight to 10 million, depending on, you know, what numbers you, you hear, 
eight to 10 million brand new first time gun owners. Now they're not all gonna instantly, you know, the minute they've transacted and purchased a firearm, have a, a deep understanding of, of history and the, the reason that the Bill of Rights is in place and what the Second Amendment really stands for and that it isn't our permission slip. It is the government uh, telling the government, you stay out of this area. We don't need a permission slip. And uh, these people are not automatically going to get that. But it seems that it, this is a, a really... Uh, dangerous area politically for any politician to start trampling on in such a heavy-handed way with that many brand new gun owners. Do you have any thoughts or, or ideas about that? I do. Uh, in fact, you're absolutely right. Uh, the number of gun owners has increased massively. And of course, the denigration, the demonization, the uh, hate directed to gun owners continues. Now, uh, gun owners are white supremacists. I guess that includes the largest number of black firearms purchasers that we've ever had in the country. Uh, so, but it, we, we, we're constantly de demonized and have been uh, for a decade by elitists who don't know much about firearms, have never been involved in the shooting sports, and think, and m many of whom live in guarded enclaves so that they don't have to worry about defending themselves, their families, or their neighborhoods. Uh, that's, uh, that, that's, that, that goes on. If you'll remember back to the battle with the Clinton administration, when the so-called assault weapons ban was passed, the result of that was a backlash in the next off-year election that resulted in the Republicans, which were, have emerged as sort of the pro-Second Amendment party, taking power in the Congress for the first time in 40 years. You remember the 2000 uh, election where the, the outgoing president, Bill Clinton, said that the Democratic candidate, his vice president, Al Gore, lost five or six states because of the backlash against their assault on the Second Amendment. That's the reality. What are the Democrats in power this time trying to do with their new progressive majority? What they're trying to do is change the rules so that they can both go after the Second Amendment and survive the backlash by, by rigging the rules so that in the next election, those of us who are deplorable will not have a level playing field on which to fight them. I am convinced that if they don't manage to rig the rules, uh, that their, their majority in both the Senate and the House will last only two years. They can do a lot of damage in two years, but they know that if they want to get what they want, they're going to have to change the rules to survive longer. So the two uh, ways I know of off the top of my head when we talk about rigging the rules is the HR1 and trying to kill the filibuster. Am I on the right track there? Yeah, they're related. Uh, in fact, uh, the filibuster in, in the final analysis may depend on your Arizona senator uh, who has indicated thus far, at least, that she's not very uh, oh, keen on the idea. Yes, uh, Kristen Cinema, that she's not very keen on the idea of getting rid of the filibuster. Uh, but it's going to be very close, and, and they can't accomplish these things with the filibuster. They can't pass H.R. 1 with the filibuster. They can't pass anti-gun legislation with the filibuster because they can't get the 60 votes they need to overcome a filibuster. Uh, so they're, they're, there's a major assault on it, obviously. It's now considered racist uh, in its origins. In fact, the Democratic Party in the in the four years before uh, uh, Obama, uh, uh, 
Biden's election, used the filibuster over 250 times in the Senate to thwart some of the things that Donald Trump wanted to do. So historically, of course, the majority tends not to like the filibuster. The minority does because it was designed to protect minority rights. But they have to eliminate it to accomplish these other things. Then what happens? Then they pass H.R. 1, which I'm sure your, your audience knows, changes all the rules. It nationalizes elections. Uh, it makes it impossible for, for state and local uh, authorities to question any ballots. Uh, it legalizes uh, uh, ballot harvesting. Uh, it does everything that Democrats think they can do to manage to manipulate the elections as they did uh, in, this last, in this last year. The question isn't whether there's massive voter fraud. You don't need massive voter fraud. Uh, they didn't need it in Illinois in 1960 when, uh, when uh, uh, then Mayor Daley delivered that state and the presidency to John Kennedy. Uh, they didn't need it in a number of state and local elections where people won by three or four votes. The fact is that every instance of illegal voting or ineligible voting, voters voting, uh, is an insult to the very structure of the American Republic. So the Democrats believe, whether it's true or not, that they couldn't win. And they've stated very clearly in their strategic papers that they can't hold power unless they do two things. One, uh, enact H.R. 1 to, to change the rules. Secondly, three things actually. Secondly, add two states to guarantee safe hold on the Senate. Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia. And thirdly, change the redistricting rules to put redistricting in the hands of so-called nonpartisan commissions, which tend to be do dominated by liberal academics uh, who then uh, uh, redistrict in a, in a way that aids the Democratic Party. If they can do all that, if they can do that then, after eliminating the filibuster, then they think that they're safe and they can do whatever they want without fearing a popular backlash. Uh, what that does in terms of damaging the country is, is a whole nother question. I, I, I suspected as I watched uh, President Biden's first press conference or what passed for a press conference during this administration, when he was asked about who the Republican candidate would be uh, four years from now, he said, I don't even know if the Republican party will exist. Well, maybe he was fantasizing that all of these things had passed and they could just get rid of the opposition and run a one-party state, because that's the goal of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And among the, and among the targets and among the things they want to accomplish is, the, is to, to not just gut, but to eliminate the meaning of the Second Amendment. You know, David, I'm trying to put some thought into this and, and, and comment, and you're on spot. It's, it's hard for me to, to question. I was filibustering. <laughs> and, and yeah, but the thing is that you know why can't the American people see what's going on? I mean, this this is a big scam. The whole thing. Well, I think if I, you know the the question is how do you fight this? Uh, first of all, if if uh, the Senate can hold the line and prevent the abolishing of the filibuster, then we get to make the decision at the polls in two years. Uh, and in two years, the American people are going to really realize what's going on. You know, you asked earlier about how this compares to what happened before. After the Obama assault on the Second Amendment, a left-wing blogger said, how come it is, how come is it that 
whenever one of these tragedies occur, that, you know, when they, when there's a shooting or something they can use to exploit to then go after the second amendment, how come we all think we're going to win? And the polls even show that we're going to win. And at the end of the day, more people buy guns than bought them before and more people and we lose. And my answer to that is very simple. One, uh, in the, in the Obama fight, and now presumably in this fight, the pro-Second Amendment people ask this simple question. Let's say that you did all of the things that you want to do uh, with the background checks and all of the different things that they want to expand. Would that have prevented what happened? The answer always was, well, no, but we have to do something. This time they're using a, sh a shooting in Colorado uh, as the catalyst for their assault on the Second Amendment. Colorado has already enacted all of what they want to do nationally. So would it have prevented what happened in Colorado? The answer to that is no. The only way they can get people to, um, can get bad guys to kill people with knives and baseball bats more often than they do is to completely eliminate firearms ownership, confiscate the firearms, register them, then go after them with, with what uh, the administration likes to call uh, mandatory buybacks. That means you give up your gun or you go to jail. Uh, and that's, that's the end game. That's what they want. Uh, and will they get it? The answer is they didn't get it last time and they won't get it this time unless they change the rules because deep down in the DNA of the American people is an appreciation of what the Second Amendment means. We know uh, that uh, without private ownership of firearms, this country wouldn't exist in the first place. And we know uh, that uh, that people have an inherent right to protect themselves, their families, and their communities. You know, when I wrote the book that you that you sent, I I called it "Shall Not Be Infringed" because if you read the Second Amendment, those words tell you that the founder founding fathers of this country realized that personal protection, firearms rights, private ownership of firearms was not something the government could grant. The right to defense for thousands of years had been had been recognized as a human right, and what they were saying is that the government they formed should not infringe upon that right. Mm -hmm. The other side on the gun issue tends to say, "Well, we grant the government granted you the right to have a gun; the government can take it away." No, they can't. Not under the wording of our Constitution and the recognition of the meaning of that right to the founding fathers and those who come since. And in the midst of all these fights, when the debate's over, if the debate goes on and it focuses on the issues, the pro-Second Amendment people end up winning the debate because all the other side wants to do is deprive legitimate citizens of their, of their rights and prevent them from having the ability and the right to defend themselves, their families, their children, and their community. So once that goes on and it's realized that nothing they're proposing has any has has any real value in terms of, of public safety and the in the rest, they lose. And if that debate can take place this time, they'll lose again. Right. Well David, you know, I'm I'm listening to what you're saying and I you know my dad used to uh, fight for gun rights years ago, back in the sixties and it at that time it was Saturday night specials. You know, let's get rid of the Saturday night specials. And when we see the list for Saturday Night Specials, it included Colt Pythons, included sure. guns. But the whole goal is, is, you're right, 
is they want to completely abolish guns completely off the face of the planet. And they, they play little games like, we just need you to get rid of this and just get rid of that. But the sad thing is there are gun owners that say, well, I don't have an AR-15, so I don't care about that. That's exactly right. Uh, but you know, when the Obama assault came, uh, one of the first things that, uh, that happened was Dianne Feinstein, who had been the author of the first legislation abolishing the so-called assault weapons said, I have a new assault weapons ban right here in my desk and I've been waiting to introduce it. The Senate majority leader, Harry Reid, wouldn't even allow it to come to the floor for a vote. Why? Because in the 1990s, uh, when the Clinton administration went about trying to, uh, to uh, demonize and outlaw the AR-15, for example, statistically, nobody owned one. Uh, oh, there were a few people, but it was not a widely owned firearm. By the time the uh, Obama administration came in, it was owned by millions of people and parts and, 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 and uh, AR-15s were produced by dozens and dozens of companies. Politicians recognize those sorts of things. It's one thing to abolish something that doesn't need really to be abolished because not very many people have one. It's another thing to abolish something that's owned by five or six million people. A lot more people own it today, and it's why the Supreme Court in the Heller decision uh, back in 2008 included a paragraph that said that while every fundamental right is subject to reasonable restrictions, it is not reasonable, and you cannot under the Second Amendment ban a firearm that's widely owned or commonly owned and widely used for legitimate purposes. So the situation is that at this point in our history, it's clear that that's something that won't pass constitutional muster, regardless of how many people uh, in Congress want to abolish it. Well, wait, I, one thing, you know, you said that, and let's see if I can reword it right, but you said that, uh, that they can control some of the, uh, the, the ways that, you know, the government can control some of this, but doesn't the Second Amendment say shall not be infringed, period? Yes, it does, but uh, con constitutional interpretation from the very beginning uh, has said that there are some things that you can do that don't in, uh, that don't uh, interfere with uh, with individual rights, even on fundamental questions. The question is, how do the courts look at those restrictions? Right. And the way that some of the courts have ignored the meaning of those Supreme Court decisions is that even though this, the decision called these fundamental rights, the courts of lower courts have argued in some instances that they're not fundamental rights, and therefore restrictions can be looked at in what they call with what they call intermediate scrutiny, which allows you to do a lot of things. If it's a fundamental right, the courts are supposed to look at it with strict, what they call strict scrutiny. And all of these, these attempts to uh, restrict Second Amendment rights that we've seen don't pass strict scrutiny. And that's really what has to be applied. So that's a, that's a problem. But uh, Second Amendment law, uh, today, and this is why the court system is so important, is about where First Amendment law was in the 1920s. Everybody recognized that the First Amendment was a fundamental right, that people had a right to, to uh, exercise religion, to speak freely and the like. But in, for example, in the area of free speech, we all, they then had the decision, well, you can't, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Uh, that would be a reasonable restriction. It took maybe 50, 70, 80 cases that went to the Supreme Court on all kinds of different attempts to restrict freedom of speech for us to know now what you can and can't do because the court said, no, this is something you can't do. 
Uh, you can't charge exorbitant fees for the right for somebody to speak. You can't deny them a platform. Uh, all of the different things that go into the speech. The, the Second Amendment, when I went to law school a long time ago, they never discussed the Second Amendment. It was as if it didn't exist. There weren't decisions on it. Nobody said anything. Now, it's interesting because when I was president of the NRA uh, around 2013, the after Heller, uh, after the Heller and McDonald decisions in the Supreme Court, I'd get calls from law schools saying, "Do you know somebody <laughs> that would like to be an adjunct professor to teach Second Amendment law? Because we don't have anybody that knows anything about it." Well, there have to be 50, 60 cases that go to the Supreme Court on all of these things until we know what the parameters of reasonable restrictions are. For example, if you use the, the First Amendment uh, uh, analogy there's a point at which you can't tax ammunition and firearms in the way that leads to the inability of, of uh, most people or many people to own one for self-defense purposes. That would be a violation of the Second Amendment. Where is that line drawn? We don't know that because the courts haven't decided, but we know logically and based on constitutional theory that there is such a point. Uh, you, you can't deny people a firearm uh, because you think they might be dangerous. You can't describe them as uh, white supremacists or black activists and say they can't get a gun uh, because we don't we don't trust them. You can't do that. Uh, in this country, we, we historically and constitutionally do not treat people as members of a group. We treat them as individuals. There are a whole series of things that are going to have to be decided and will be decided. And that's why the progressives are so upset with the fact that over the last few years, reasonable people who believe the Constitution means something, were appointed to the federal courts. You know, it's funny that 27 words I know. takes that many lawyers and judges to try to figure out what it means. It's the most simple amendment in the whole Constitution, but yet we've got to have scholars to try to figure out what that means. That's right. It's, <laughs> it's crazy. And so here uh, we have... Go ahead, Dave. Sorry. I went to law school and that's what they taught you <laughs> is how to take simple things and make them really complicated. That's why I'm a columnist and not a lawyer. <laughs> no doubt. So, uh, you know, we can go to the ballot box. We can try to, you know, talk to our already elected officials. You know, we can hope that the courts are going to, you know, take cases and interpret them uh, the way that we think our founders would have wanted them to. But then we have this this weird middle space. And it's a it's this unelected entity called the ATF. And the level of, of power of the ATF with their, their ability to define things, um, it feels like it's just growing and growing and growing. And we, we own a gun store ourselves. We own easy firearms. And so, you know, we go through audits regularly on and on. And you know, everything comes down to the, to the person. We've had really great auditors. We've had auditors that we feel like, uh, oh, they might need to go and read the rule book again, you know, that kind of thing. But then this entity itself to have the power to, with, with the stroke of a pen, say, here, this piece of plastic known as a bump stock is now a, a fully automatic uh, firearm somehow. And everyone has to get rid of them, right? I, I think there was a case that was recently one through the GOA, but I don't quite understand what all the ramifications of that are. But the fact that they could do it in the first place, what are we to do? What can we do? That's a fundamental problem and question that goes far beyond the Second Amendment and the concerns of gun owners, because the, 
the ability of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives to make those kinds of regulations without reference to the people is part of what the administrative state means, where vast areas of public life that used to be politically determined are now determined by bureaucrats. It's as if we have a creeping European community uh, taking over America where elections don't matter. That was one of the reasons that there was such an uprising in the 2016 election. People were just fed up with the fact that they didn't seem to have anything to say about anything. Uh, and uh, fortunately, uh, as long as the courts are there, we have some appeal. And that's the, the fight over the bump stocks, for example, continues. Uh, but uh, but uh, President Biden has suggested that they just reinterpret everything uh, and say that these these things that didn't used to apply to semi-automatic weapons, for example, do apply just by changing definitions. That's something that you, you have to fight in the course, but that's the whole problem with the drift of American representative democracy in recent decades. It's We sense it, you sense it, because you have an FFL and therefore have to really worry about what uh, what comes out of that agency. But every American business, every, you know, from the environmental concerns to almost everything else are facing exactly the same problem. And that's the real structural problem that's been, that's developed in recent decades uh, that, has, that is causing frustration in the American people. Right. It's like you, you can give an agent the power, you give him the power to just decide on his own what is legal and what's not. I mean, it, well, just let's take a, a recent example. Uh, it's it's now it's now learned that uh, in 2018, uh, Hunter Biden, uh, the president's uh, ne'er do well son, uh, who was in the midst of an affair with his brother's widow, uh, had had uh, purchased a gun, uh, supposedly legally from a firearms dealer. In fact, he filled out the uh, uh, the form that he was supposed to think, swearing he'd never been a drug addict <laughs> uh, when he was actually currently a drug addict. Then, uh, the, um, uh, then his, uh, his girlfriend, his brother's widow, uh, thought he was dangerous, took the gun away from him and threw it into a trash container, which uh, coincidentally was right across from an elementary school in Delaware. Uh, he panicked. The police came searching for the gun, which had been t taken by a homeless person out of, the, uh, out of the trash container. And then the Secret Service intervened and went to the gun dealer. And you would, you'd, you'd have to face this if you were them and demanded the records. Uh, and the gun dealer said, ah, no, because we have to maintain and keep these records for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and we're not giving them up. They were put under great pressure to give them up and didn't do it. Uh, but everybody decided that there was no reason to prosecute this guy uh, because he really hadn't done anything wrong. That was a that was a decision that in that instance was a was a arbitrary decision by a bureaucrat in his case, based on the fact that his father was a former vice president. Mm -hmm. uh, but it takes place in one form or another every day, everywhere where something that somebody that one bureaucrat says is illegal. Another one says, no, it isn't. Uh, that's not illegal. And that's what you're really talking about because many of these decisions are arbitrary uh, and you have to give bureaucrats some flexibility, but you also need red line rules that say you can do some things and you can't do some other things. Let me give you a, a, a quick example. You remember after 9-11, for a time, the, uh, everything was banned at airports. 
uh, all the rules were changing. You couldn't. So firearms owners were in a particular bind because uh, the, the, the rule is that if you want to transport a firearm, it has to be in a locked case. And by statute, as it turned out, the locked case after inspection has to be locked. And when the only person with the ability to open it has to be the passenger, the owner of the firearm. Mm -hmm. So they decided then that, uh, that, that they put in these sniffers to detect explosives. And this is something we had to get involved in at the NRA because uh, the sniffer couldn't tell the difference between a bomb and, uh, and uh, gunpowder residue. Mm -hmm. So you went to the airport, you had your thing inspected, your, your gun case, you locked it up, you put it on the conveyor belt, and as it went through, the sniffer went off and said, uh-oh, we've got a problem here. Then the guys behind the thing would say, well, but it's locked. Well, let's, let's, take the, let's get the bolt cutters and cut off the lock. So they cut off the lock, they'd open the gun case and say, oh, it's a gun, that's legal. And then the other one would say, yes, but it's not locked, and it's illegal for an issue. So we'll have to confiscate it. Uh, and that went on. And when we met with the, uh, with it hurts the, the brain, David. It TSA does. people, it does hurt the brain. We said, it's complicated. We have a problem here because statutorily it has to be locked. And by regulation, you want to get into it. And, uh, and they said, well, this shouldn't be a problem because the TSA officials can, uh, can operate with common sense. I said, that is, common sense is not something that I ordinarily attribute to underpaid bureaucrats with yeah. no experience in it. And that's the kind of thing that happens. Uh, and, and, and frankly, on, in a whole variety of areas, it happens every day. We got that one straightened out. Now, now you do have to allow them access with the kinds of locks they develop. But at that point, uh, you were just between a rock and a hard place because you did everything illegally and then they cut the lock off and said, oh, well, now we can't ship it because the statute yeah. says we can't. Yeah, or they pair the customer back up, the, the person flying back up with the unlocked case and the firearm. And now that person's in trouble because they're not allowed to have a gun in the airport unlocked. Anyway, right. it's just madness. Um, I, I do want to ask you, because you were the president of the NRA, so you have a, you know, a, a view into things that you know, maybe the rest of us are just standing on the sidelines, but every large organization goes through rough patches. They go through reorganizations, they go through attacks, they go through all kinds of stuff. So whatever it is that's happening with the NRA, I, I want to, to, I'm hoping you're gonna give me some assurance that they are able to still have a powerful voice uh, in the conversation uh, because clearly they've, they've got a lot of, of bandwidth taken up with the, the cases that they're fighting in that. Uh, what, what do you feel about that? Are, are they able to do both things at the same time? Yes, I, I, think, I think that, uh, that we can. I'm still on the board uh, of the NRA, and we're involved in this uh, reorganization to move our corporate uh, presence to Texas from New York. I blame this whole thing on Phil Sheridan and Ulysses S. Grant. They should have had the foresight back in the 1870s to know that New York was eventually going to go bad. Uh, uh, but but it, that's, that's where the NRA was incorporated, though we're headquartered in Virginia. And over the years, we have discussed uh, perhaps moving it, but it never was at a crisis point until the current attorney general as a candidate said, elect me and I'm going to destroy the NRA and then set about doing it. 
or trying to do it, which is what what's happening in New York. It's so bad up there that the American Civil Liberties Union, who you would not ordinarily expect to be in bed with the National Rifle Association, mm-hmm. has been from the beginning on our side on this, saying they can't do this. They're trying to shut you down, not because you did anything wrong, but because of the fact that they don't agree with you. Mm-hmm. We eventually decided uh, that what was that now it was time to get out. So we decided that uh, we would uh, reorganize and uh, and and go to Texas uh, under the under the bankruptcy laws. Bankruptcy in most people's mind simply means you're broke. In fact, we were able to do it because we're flush and able to pay all of our bills. So we can just use the reorganization part uh, to move to Texas, and uh, that's wa- that's awaiting approval now. Through all this. Uh, you know, back in the summer of, of uh, last year, one of the spokesmen for uh, Mayor Bloomberg's group, uh, Every Town for Gun Safety, said that it was delighted that this was going on because they said this year the NRA is not going to be able to spend money on politics because we're making them spend it on lawyers. And that's what it was all about. It was to take the NRA off the playing field. Okay, that the failed. timing of it was just, uh, you know, not... Uh, a, a big head scratcher for me. The, the right. so, is- yeah, we knew what was going on. Yeah. So, uh, but in, in, in this last election cycle, we spent about the same amount on politics, about $30 million as we did in the previous cycle. A lot of that money went to Senate and House candidates because the presidential race was, was funded in the billions, as you know, from uh, mm-hmm. on both sides. And that paid dividends because in fact, even as we were losing the presidency, uh, and we were involved in the presidential campaign, but even as we were losing the presidency, we were actually strengthening the numbers of pro-gun people uh, in the uh, in in both houses. Uh, so we're so we've had the effect, and will continue to have the effect that we've had. It's, it's vitally important now uh, because one of the things that happens when one of these fights goes on, we have discovered, learned, come to appreciate over the years that gun owners, whether they're NRA members or not, and most of them aren't, we represent typically about 10% of the firearms owner in any states, which makes us huge, but does not, but means 90% of them aren't there. They don't get the, the constant briefings and all that. But when they recognize that there's a real threat to their rights, they're willing to go out and vote and do whatever they need to protect those rights. Our job and the job of other of other membership groups that are involved in the firearms fight is to make sure those people know what the what the, the odds are the stakes are, and when that happens at the ballot box, we win, and we also win uh, a lot of times with politicians who are are mostly interested in keeping their jobs, because even between elections, some of them realize that win or lose, there may be consequences to the way they vote. You know, when uh, when the Obama fight took place, you'll remember each time that these fights have taken place, the president and the and Michael Bloomberg and the rest of them realize that the road to gun confiscation, gun registration, all of these things runs right through the National Rifle Association. Mm. So when Obama made his speech, he said, you know, the NRA used to matter. It doesn't matter anymore. Nobody agrees with them. They all agree with me. Uh, you may remember that speech. Uh, during the time that that speech took place, uh, the phones ran off the hook at the NRA and we signed up 27,000 new members in a half an hour. Uh, and, uh, but, but the common wisdom in Washington was that Obama was right and that the NRA was past due or past its time. 
when the uh, when the uh, assault weapons ban so-called passed in the 1990s i still have someplace a copy of the washington post that the nra is through front page headline two years later the congress found out the nra wasn't through uh, now they're saying, well, the NRA has got all these legal difficulties and that, so they're not going to have any impact. Our job is to make sure that those people who agree with us and agree that the Second Amendment is important know the stakes. Mm -hmm. And that's as important now as it ever has been, and it's something that we are going to do. We're doing it now. Uh, and as you know, we've uh, uh, these states that uh, have tried to, for example, during the pandemic to, to rule that gun stores are not uh, are not essential. We, we went to court in a number of cities and got those reversed. But our job now is to make sure that the public understands the consequences of what the Biden administration is attempting to do. Right. So, David, how many people work at the New York branch of the NRA or, you know, where, where that's incorporated? Uh, no, virtually none. We have a few field peoples. We're legally incorporated in New York. Okay. Our headquarters in Virginia where we have five or 600 employees, and then we've got people around the country. But you're, you're subject to attack and the jurisdiction in which you're uh, incorporated. Yeah. The only reason I ask is, I mean, wouldn't you want to get out of New York anyway? I mean, I, I wouldn't, one dime, not one dime. <laughs> I've always wanted to go to New York until about four years ago. And now I will never, I don't ever want to go there. I, I, I could I tell you a story that... Uh, Tommy Milner of Cabela's once told me uh, about why there's no Cabela store in New York, but we're on a, a public, uh, <laughs> I can't repeat the whole story, but I can tell you, we're really doing what Andrew Cuomo wants done because he said a few years ago at a press conference, there were two things he didn't want in New York, conservatives and guns. So we're just taking his advice and, and trying to get the heck out of there. You know, it's like California. We, there are a lot, a lot of uh, gun owners in New York state. Uh, and once you get out of the sea, once you get out in, into upper New York, uh, you're, you're in our kind of country. Uh, we represent, you know, there are a lot of gun owners in California. Uh, you and I wouldn't want to be there, but they live there and we have to try to protect their rights as well. But we right. don't have to be headquartered in a corporate sense in New York when places like Texas exist. Right. Absolutely. So I, I think that's a a strong move. A well, good there's move. a lot of people moving out of New York right now. <laughs> Some of us never moved to New York, so we don't have to worry about it. Moving out, yeah. All right. Well, we do need to start wrapping up. I've kept you much longer than what I actually had planned to, but we could keep talking all day. I, I just want to kind of wind down and take us back to the book that you wrote. The It's called Shall Not Be Infringed the new assault on your second amendment. You wrote that back when Hillary was running for president, I believe. Right. And there's just been this, you know, onslaught, this tidal wave of garbage information, misinformation, disinformation about uh, the second amendment, about who we are as gun owners, about uh, the, the people who believe in our rights and maybe are never even going to be gun owners. Um, and a, a myriad of other things. We should be in the age of information, right? Everything's at, at our fingertips, on our laptops, right? But that's where the messages get twisted and um, messed up. Where do we go? <laughs> you know, just as, as moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas, we got busy lives, we're doing a million things. 
where do we go? How do we find real information, factual information that's not polluted with so much spin and politics? Any thoughts on that? Well, in terms of the political information and the kinds of threats that are taking place in the states and the pro-gun legislation that's taking place in the states, remember, with all this onslaught going on, this should be a clue to people in Washington. Uh, just this week, Iowa uh, uh, legalized what they call constitutional carry, so you don't have to get permission if you're a legal gun owner to carry concealed. Other states are moving in the same direction, Tennessee, for example, Arkansas recently. So th there's a lot of good, good things happening as well. One place to go for that information is NRA ILA, the Institute for Legislative Action, which keeps briefings there for gun owners. Uh, and the other thing is shows like yours, you know, we're not just gun owners, uh, but a lot of Americans are up against the fact that the so-called progressive left and the mainstream media in this country are basically partners in attempting to achieve the very same agenda, which is antithetical uh, to, uh, to traditional American rights and values. Uh, but facts do matter. Uh, I said earlier, when the debate took place during the Obama administration, once the facts get out there, and once you start talking about the facts, uh, the American people say, wait a minute, what they're saying doesn't make any sense, uh, and you win. That's why that partnership that the, uh, that the progressive left has with the mainstream media is so dangerous uh, to the American Republic because the American Republic and democratic representational government is dependent on the ability of citizens to get the facts so that they can make reasoned decisions. Uh, and uh, if we, it, it's one reason why when these debates take place, we have to get into them. We have to get into them with our, with our understanding of the history, the facts, the consequences, you know, when you tell somebody uh, that has never thought about it, well, why, why do they want to ban the AR-15? Uh, after all, they're very rarely, as a matter of fact, in spite of what you may see on MSNBC, very rarely used in killing. More, more people are beaten to death than are killed in any given year by all the long arms produced in this country or anywhere else. Uh, so what's this all about? It's not about safety. It's about a political agenda. And when you start talking about the facts, people say, yeah, that's right. Uh, they, you know, they, they try to say it's all for the kids. Well, government figures say that your child is more likely to drown in a bucket of water while you're, you're, you're cleaning your kitchen floor than he or she is to be killed in an accidental firearms accident. Mm -hmm. There are fewer accidental firearms accidents today with all of our population growth and all of the firearms growth than there were before World War One. But wait, David, I saw a clip yesterday where a congresswoman said that an AR-15 was really heavy and it shot 50 caliber bullet. So you tell <laughs> no, me, was true? She went to the same class to learn about guns that Joe Biden was attending. Yes. <laughs> you know, so the fact is they don't know anything. Uh, and, they, and they dream up these fantasies, as, as you know, uh, an AR-15 and two two three caliber is illegal in most states for deer hunting because it's not powerful enough. Mm -hmm. uh, any any shotgun, most any big game rifle uh, is more powerful than the, than these things. But they're and they're not heavy. The reason they're not heavy is because they're designed so that people can carry them uh, comfortably and use them comfortably. It's one of the reasons that women uh, like them for both self-defense and sports shooting. My daughter 
uh, spent about uh, 10 or 12 years in the Army. She did two tours in Iraq and one in Afghanistan. And she has one gun now that she's a civilian life. She has an AR-15 because she, she learned on the military fully automatic version of that gun. She's comfortable with it. She knows how to handle it. Uh, and she keeps it in her closet. Uh, I think we could win. We could win every debate out there with this, all this negative news that's out there about guns. If people would just listen and look at the facts, we would win every battle. And get up out of their emotions yes. because that is really the battlefield we're on is the battlefield of emotions instead of logic. That's um, right. David, thank you so much for all this time that you've given us, all this wisdom. We so appreciate you. Uh, please tell folks how they continue can continue to follow all the work that you do. Well, you can... Uh... You can go to the NRA website or you can go to the Washington Times. I write weekly in the Washington Times, not always about guns. I write about everything from baseball to, uh, uh, you know, to uh, foreign policy. Uh, but there's a lot there on, on the Second Amendment as well. Are they trying to ban baseball now, too? Oh, my gosh. I might, I might have to boycott them if the way they're acting in Georgia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that's. You know, you can't talk about sports and That's the weather anymore. For another day, but the yes. fact is that uh, that this administration and uh, and the woke left has managed to both infiltrate uh, and and align itself with corporate America in a way that's very dangerous. Yes, it absolutely is. It is, David A. Keen. Thank you so much for all that you do that and uh, for all this time that you've given us. We will definitely be asking you back on again soon. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Keep up the good work, David. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. I, I got a question for you. We probably got a lot of questions. No, but this one's Because that legit. was a great yes, conversation. My, my brain is like <clears throat> it's legit. on fire of things to talk about. So we vote politicians in, right? Check. That's what we do, right, guys? Yes. We vote politicians in. We think we do. For what we reason? Hope we do. For what reason? And this is the thing that's going to really drives me nuts right now. To give me permission? Yeah. To give me permission. How about no? I vote people oh, in. I, you know what? I, I, I left the house at 19, 18, 19 years old. Mm -hmm. I, that's the last time I thought I would need permission. Mm -hmm. no, I know exactly. I can't break laws and stuff like that. Blah, blah, blah. I vote people in office to give me permission to be free. Mm. Something's wrong. That is wrong. And it's upside down because the way that our founders, the, the recipe book that they gave us, right. The, uh, the owner's manual, the roadmap, whatever you want to call, uh, however you want to categorize the constitution and the bill of rights, they absolutely were not interested in asking for anyone's permission. That is the reason right. that they fought, bled, starved, and died to push back, at that time, the most powerful military force on the planet to get them out of our lives. And then the inheritors, the people that have inherited this, the beneficiaries of this, we have slowly, slowly undone their work. How many millions of people have died so that we don't have to ask for permission? It's sick. And you know, it's 27 words. We have to have attorneys for 27 words.
I mean, that's shameful. And honestly, you know, it's just when they wrote the constitution, you may have said it, but I'm going to say it in a different way. They, they, they didn't give us permission because they didn't have the right to give us permission. That was not their, their job was to say, we don't have a right to grant you permission and we don't have a right to deny you permission. Well right. Said. Well said. And, 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 and we need to get that cemented firmly right. in not only our brains, but in the next generation, our children what who we just... are having children. Right. And so that it can be passed along in the way that it was intended to be passed along and preserved, not polluted, not twisted, not common sense not I believe in guns, but we have got to get back to the basics and the foundations and begin once again to push government out of our personal lives. Government is great for the things that it was designed to do, but running our personal lives, spending our personal money. Yeah, that is not what they were designed to do, what it was designed to do at any level. Um, great conversation. Yes. Lots to take into your world. Lots for our awesome listeners who we appreciate and we value so much. Uh, your time is your most valuable commodity. And when you spend it with us, we, we recognize it. We, we value it. And then when you take these, these conversations and these ideas around your dinner table into your carpools, uh, at the little league games, all the things that we're getting permission to once again, that's a big word. Do Think about that when you're sitting at your dinner table and a COVID year Yeah, permission, I give you, we're voting people in to give us permission. Do you want that? No, sir. Uh, but there's lots in this conversation. May I have another, please? To... Yeah, please, sir. May I have my freedom? Please, sir. May I, may I please my breathe life? without a mask? May I... Oh, come on, please. Mm. No, no. But wait, we were just granted permission in Arizona. Now, I'm going to give credit for Doozy for saying no more. Governor but he, but I got to take the, I got to take it away from him because he made it happen. Right. So he. He took it away from us. He took our rights away from us. And then, oh, he gave him back to us. So now he's a hero. No. I, again, I'm thankful that he took it, that he gave us the right to not wear a mask. Make yeah. that clear. We'll give but he should have never due, took it. He should have never gave it exactly. the rule because he and is if not. You, if you are a mask wearer and you believe in the masks and yay. you choose to wear a mask, God bless you. Yeah, I like reading the colorful messages on masking. You know. do what you want. We're not, you do we're you. not mad about that. Yeah, do you. But when we choose all of the many perils that freedom has, <clears throat> and we've decided that that is, you know, how we want to live, mask-free, then give us that same but you might breathe on me. and respect. You want to breathe on me. Well, then don't come close to me and I can't breathe on you. See, that's your choice too. See freedom. It's amazing. All right. We got to get out of here. Thank you so much to David A. Keen. Thank you so much to our awesome listeners. Uh, if you've missed any portion of this show or want to catch all of our shows, you can find us on the OpsLens smartphone app. You can find us on YouTube until they cancel us on gun streamer, which is very much like YouTube, but very gun friendly. Or on, if you want to listen to the audio only version, go to our website, gunfreedomradio.com, click the on-demand tab and binge listen to your heart's content. Wait, you can't watch the video on our website? 
you there are links within uh, each uh, show page, but uh, you know if you've already jumped to YouTube or Gunstreamer, then no. you know you don't have to come back to our our website. But uh, yes, that that's a good question. And uh, if you want to see photos and bios and links to all of the guests that we've ever had on, same uh, address, gunfreedomradio.com. Click the guest tab and you will find a wonderful resource there of all of the subject matter experts that we've ever had on. And when you spend time there, we don't hate that. All right. We got to get out of here. Until next time, pray for our nation. Pray for our leaders. They're not leaders. Pray for our elected officials. Okay. All of them? All of them. Even the ones you don't like? Especially the ones you don't like. Nicely done, Dan. But you just got to remember, uh, we do not have leaders. We have elected officials. Lead means tell me what to do. Fair enough. I can't believe that we vote for permission. Well, Come on. Stop doing that. Well, then we stop voting and then we we give them the... No, it's a, it's a catch-22. We don't vote, right? They get elected because we didn't vote. And then we do nothing about it. And, and then they, so we have to vote. We have to vote to get then permission. Then we have to follow up with them, uh, the people that we have hired with our votes. So, all right, gang, thank you so much. Have a great week. Be good to each other. And God bless. Bye-bye.